When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, if you think about it, the typical aquarium setup, or at least setup process, is to add some sand, add some wood, maybe some plants, a few rocks, and boom, instant aquarium, you're done. I mean, that's the setup process. Okay, maybe there's more to it than that. However, it's interesting to me that so little consideration seems to be paid to the idea of starting an aquarium in a more functional way. Like, yeah, the basic essentials are pretty straightforward, yet the idea of creating a functional ecosystem from the ground up is almost a bit of an afterthought, in my humble opinion. In fact, it seems to take a backseat to the structural aspects or aesthetic aspects. So I thought about a lot of ways to start up a new botanical-style aquarium, and I think it sort of dovetails nicely with my philosophies and my experiences with my urban agapo setups that we've talked about so much. I think it's important to set up an aquarium, particularly a botanical style aquarium, by taking a terrestrial approach. Like, huh? What's that? What do you mean, Foman? Well, this kind of builds upon a lot of things we talked about here. One underlying theme is that aquatic environments are profoundly influenced by or even formed by the terrestrial habitats which surround them. We kind of know this already. Sure, the flooded forest floors subjected to the seasonal inundation from overflowing rivers and streams are the classic example. However, there's other influences, some less directly obvious, yet every bit is important. For example, as we've discussed repeatedly here, soils and geography, or geology specifically, in general, are very influential on the surrounding aquatic habitats. We know that blackwater environments are created partially from the surrounding soils, rich in fulvic and humic acids, as well as the rock strata from which the source waters flow, you know, like the Andes. Remember our little foray into soils and how they influence aquatic habitats? Perhaps it's time for a little refresher. In general, black waters originate from sandy soils. High concentrations of humic acids in the water are thought to occur in drainages with what scientists call podzol, sandy soils, which, from which minerals have been basically leached. The last part is interesting and helps explain, at least in part, the absence of minerals in black water. Black water rivers, like, you know, the Rio Negro, for example, originate in areas which are characterized by the presence of the aforementioned podzols. Podzols are soils with a whitish-gray color bleached by organic acids. They typically occur in humid areas like the Rio Negro and the northern upper Amazon basin. And the Rio Negro and other blackwater rivers, which drain the Precambrian, Guyana, and Brazilian shields, known to geologists, uh, can in part contribute uh, some of the dark color, or excuse me, attribute uh, some of the dark color of their water to high concentrations of dissolved humic and fulvic acids found in these soils. Although they're most, you know, probably the most infertile soils in Amazonia, much of the nutrients are extracted from the abundant plant growth that takes place in the very top soil layers, what's, layers, what's called the horizon, as virtually no plant roots are observed in the mineral soil itself. In fact, one study I read concluded that the Rio Negro is a blackwater river largely in part because the very low nutrient concentrations of the soils that drain into it 
uh, and the, they have arisen as a result of several cycles of weathering, erosion, and sedimentation. In other words, there's not a whole lot of minerals and nutrients left in the soils to dissolve into the water to any meaningful extent. Okay, that's a pretty roundabout way of re-explaining that various soils contribute to the water chemistry of the aquatic habitats which cover them. So what are the implications for us as aquarists? For one thing, perhaps your next botanical-style aquarium needs to have more of a terrestrial influence from like day one. In other words, incorporate some soil or other materials into your substrate. Yeah, I know it's the part where you trash me again for teasing about, you know, nature-based and sedimented substrates that we've been talking about forever and they're so long overdue. They're coming, they're coming. Yet, that's what I'm getting at here. Set up your aquarium with some other materials besides just clean white sand. We'll help you with that and let down the line. I promise, I promise. And while you're at it, how about throwing in some botanical materials into the mix, like leaves, intact or crushed, to sort of kickstart the biological processes or feed the biological processes. I'm a huge fan of the radically weird, highly variable, and utterly dirty live oak leaf litter. I think it's great stuff. It has so many interesting things, a lot of what you need to accomplish this. And, oh, it'll help tend the water, too. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm thinking that many different botanical-style aquariums should be set up almost as if you're going to do a vivarium or even a little planted terrarium like full-on terrestrial habitats. I'd spray them down for a week or two, get the leaves all moist, and perhaps even start the decomposition process a little bit. Essentially, you're prepping the substrate for life, creating and facilitating the biological relationship between the aquatic and terrestrial environments. The interdependencies are really complicated and really interesting. And it just goes to show you that some of the things that we could do in our aquariums, like utilizing alternative substrate materials, botanicals, and perhaps even submersion, you know, tolerant terrestrial plants, are strongly reminiscent of what happens in the wild. We know this because we've seen their impact on natural aquatic ecosystems all the time, don't we? Every flooded forest, inundated terra firma grassland, every overflowing stream provides a perfect example for us to study. The land influences the water. Each component of the terrestrial habitat has some unique impact on the aquatic habitat. Not really difficult to grasp when you think about it in the context of the stuff we know and love in other areas of life. Now, this urban agapo idea that we were pushing here for the last two years or so is just one way to play with this stuff and study these unique interdependencies. Sure, we don't typically maintain open systems, but I wonder just how much of the ecology of these fascinating habitats we can recreate in our tanks and what potential benefits could be realized when we take this kind of approach. That's my challenge to our community. We'll be talking a lot more about this in the upcoming months. This is the most superficial look at this idea, but the point is to look at the influences of land and how they affect aquatic habitats and to try to replicate them in their processes. It's easy to do. Just look around. Stay inspired. Stay creative. Stay thoughtful. Stay motivated. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tin and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.